Thank you, Will. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 21 again. Now, I think it's probably clear to all of us who have been uh, coming through the book of Proverbs that there are many side roads to the book of Proverbs and many great things that uh, Proverbs provides for us. But I think it's pretty clear that the book of Proverbs is about us getting uh, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And we have talked many, many times how that's a process in your life, that uh, an unsaved man can have knowledge and an unsaved man can have wisdom. But only a saved man can have understanding because understanding is how God fits into any equation in life or history or or, or whatever. And you'll remember that we saw uh, way back in the day when we started it in chapter 2, I I, I showed you uh, along with the how that the breakdown of Proverbs really works for you. Proverbs chapter 1 through 7 really focuses on um, him speaking to uh, his son. And it's personal instructions to you and me from God uh, of how to get these three things. And then in chapters 8 through 30, we find the Proverbs themselves, uh, an in-depth look at the issues of life that we have been laboriously coming through and and laying out for you. And then you get to the final chapter, chapter 31, and we see the final product, the virtuous woman. And we'll have a great time when when we get to that. And I showed you in chapter 2, uh, the simple six steps process for us to get those three invaluable areas in our life. Proverbs 2, I'm just going to kind of read it again. You don't have to turn back to it. You can just follow along in your mind. It says, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and lifteth up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, Then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth, cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keepeth the paths of judgment. He preserveth the way of his saints. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, every good path. Now the six things that he talks about here, we went through these, but just to show you. If you want to ever get the three main ingredients of life, knowledge, wisdom, uh, and understanding that the book of Proverbs provides for you, here's the things you have to do. First of all, he talks about, uh, my son, if thou wilt receive my words. You know, that's receiving the very word of God and recognizing that it is God's word and it's set apart from everything else in your life. Then he says, uh, if thou wilt hide my commandments with thee. That's the personal time that you have in the Bible. That's Psalms 119, verse uh, uh, 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Then he says, if thou incline thine ear uh, unto wisdom. That's the work that's involved. You know, the Bible talks about the study that show thyself approved. You know, you have to work at hard of learning uh, what the Bible says that we are to do. Then he says, in, in the next thing he says, and apply thine heart to understanding. That's the application of the word of God. It doesn't do you any good if you have the Bible and read the Bible if you don't apply what the Bible says. So we see that, uh, you know, the application of the Word of God. And then he says, if thou criest after her and lifteth up thy voice. That's a picture of your prayer life. And, of course, the great example in the Bible, probably the greatest example, 
of somebody praying for God to give them wisdom and understanding would be Solomon's prayer when he prays before the Lord to, to give, not to give him riches and not to give him honor, not to make him a great king, but to give him the wisdom to be the right kind of king for God's people. That's one of the greatest prayers in the Bible that is a model for you and for me to learn the Word of God. And uh, there's a whole set of series of things in there that uh, uh, you can look at. Then he talks about the sixth thing was to seek and to search uh, out uh, like silver and for hid treasures. There's your attitude toward the, finding the treasures in the Word of God. Uh, you know, uh, the, I, I, I watch the people who win these great lotteries, you know, it's $87, $250 million, and we'd all like to win $300 million, but it would probably ruin all of us if we ever did. But the bottom line is, I'm going to tell you something. I've gotten more excited about God showing me something out of the Word of God than winning a winning lottery ticket because of the truth of the Word of God. But it all goes back to your attitude toward these things. And as you can see, as I've already said, the key to getting all there is in your life will come down to one thing, your attitude toward the Word of God, how you look at it. The book of Proverbs is built around one idea, that is getting understanding. That in everything you look at in life, you have the ability to see God's hand in it. Now today, going back to Proverbs chapter 21, we're going to look at just three verses today, verses 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to see how you get to the place in your life of getting God's understanding and knowledge. Getting what God has. You'll remember if I read over here in Proverbs chapter 2, it says, When you do all these things, then shall thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It didn't say the knowledge about God. It said that when you do these six things, you get the same knowledge that God has. You look at things in life just like He sees them. That's the key to this whole concept. And uh, getting what He has. Now, I know that we are all human and we all have our issues. We all are frail and we all fail and we all have problems. I understand that. But as I said last week, you need to let God, uh, through your spiritual growth, develop you to your full potential that he has for you. I would say, based on my experience in the Bible and, and dealing with people and the people I've known, I would say that any human being, anybody in this room, could get to the place in your life where when it comes to you in the Bible, that you know where you're at, know what you're dealing with, 80, 85, maybe 90% of the time, that you know exactly what you got, how it lays out, doctrinally, inspirationally, and historically, that you can get that much of the Bible down and get that much of the Bible going for you uh, in your world and in your life. And I think that is, that, is so, uh, that is a realistic thing. I think you ought to get to the place in your life when you can look at any passage in the Bible, almost any passage, that you can look at any passage in the Bible, anything that you're up against, anything that somebody asks you, anything that you're reading. And about 80 to 85 to 90 percent of the time, you could figure out where you're at doctrinally, historically, and inspirationally. I really believe that. I believe that should be a goal for you. Remembering that we have a calling from God and a purpose from God that we need to become that living sacrifice like we talked about last week, counting the cost and then paying the tab. And paying the tab is doing the Word of God and getting it into your life. Now, let me start by helping you understand the word understanding a little bit better. Um, and I know everybody says, well, why can you show me about the word understand? Well, just, just shut up and listen to me for a second. <laughs> the key word to the term understanding will be the word 
see like I see. If you don't understand something in the Bible and you come over to me and I lay it out for you and systematically show it, instinctively you say, when I'm done, you say, oh, I, I see it now. See? In other words, the key word to understand the word understanding is the word see. That's understanding. Your ability to understand in your mind. Your ability now to visualize the concept and see it. Where before you didn't, you didn't understand it. You couldn't see it. Now somebody explains it to you and now suddenly, okay, now I see it. The key word to understanding is to be able to visualize the concept and then see it. In Noah's time, this is a good example, in Noah's time it had never rained. And yet Noah for 120 years was preaching that there was a coming rainstorm that was going to drown out the world. I guarantee you that one of the biggest problems he had was convincing people what rain was when they never saw what rain was. They didn't understand what rain was till they saw it. And then it was too late. I mean, they got it when they figured it out. But, I mean, six inches a minute, 30 feet an hour, 725 feet a day, that's a lot of water. And this is exactly what the word understanding means. It means that you look at a concept in the Bible or anything in life and you see it. You can take the concept and it's not abstract to you. You can visualize it. You can see it. This is how, for you folks uh, in the Bible Institute, you know, uh, this is exactly how I taught you uh, the Word of God, or I am teaching you the Word of God. And I, I have broken the Bible down into 17 compartments, vital compartments. It's not theological. It's not, it's not some, it, it, I just took the Bible, which is, you've been told all your life is a very complex book. What I'm doing is showing you how it's not. How that the Bible is the easiest book in the world to understand if you want it. And the key to it is, is being able to visualize it. Now, 31,171 verses in the King James Bible, 1,189 chapters, 66 books. That's a lot of visualization. That's a lot of vision to be able to see that. But when you break it down into 17 components... And what we're doing in Bible Institute is once a month we're taking those seven, one of those components, maybe two of them, and I'm completely breaking them down, showing it to them, giving it to them, and explaining every aspect of it. And they come away being able to see what is going on in those sections. And then in time, once we get through the 17 sections, then we can bolt all those sections back together. Voila, you have you have the whole Bible, a visual, a, a, a visual representation in your mind. And the rest of your life, if you do your work, the rest of your life, and here's the key to the Bible. The key to the Bible is visually seeing it. The key to the Bible is understanding it. The key to the Bible, when somebody talks about the tribulation period, you see it in your mind. You know what it is. Somebody talks about the millennium. You see it. Somebody talks about the first coming of Christ. You see it. Somebody talks about the second coming of Christ. You see it. And you automatically see the difference between that one and the second coming because you visualize it. But you can't just open up the Bible and start taking visual pictures of it. You have to break it down. You have to break it down into sections and then visualize, understand each section. 
And when you see each section and understand it completely in time, you'll put your whole Bible together and then you'll have understanding. No matter what anybody asks you, what anybody says to you, what anybody does, uh, you know, with the Word of God, you'll automatically sitting in any place at all, whether you're watching the news, whether you're listening to somebody teach the Bible, whether you're just talking to somebody, you're in a constant state of visually understanding what they're saying because you see it. Now, once we do that with the Bible, then we treat you to do that with dealing with people. See? We'll get to that part in just a little bit. But I want you to understand the concept of understanding. Now, I, 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 I come up with that idea based on something that happened in World War II. And I'm a crazy guy. I'll see something... In, in, in the world, and I'll make the spiritual application, and suddenly, I, voila, I got it. I, I know how to put it into a Bible context. I remember, I don't even remember what I was watching, but it was talking about shipbuilding. Early in World War II, the, the Germans uh, had the U-boats on water submarines, and they had perfected U-boats where America, you know, was still playing with a cake of soap in the bathtub, so to speak. But their U-boats were called wolf packs. And they were devastating. And they roamed the Atlantic at free. And uh, they, uh, early in 1940, 40, 41, even into 42, they were just devastating shipping coming from the states. Of course, we weren't in the war yet in 39 and 40, but we were at Lend Lease sending stuff over. And they were sinking ships. I mean, you would, be, you would be amazed of how many ships were sunk in the early part of World War II before we got in it, right off the East Coast. They were laying off the East Coast watching these ships come out and they were sinking them. I mean, they were sinking hundreds of thousands of tons of American and British shipping. It was an incredible. They would hunt in wolf packs, 20 or 30 submarines, and they'd lay along the convoy routes when they were taking these convoys over there. And the convoys were sitting ducks and they would just sink. They would lose sometimes half the convoy. It was an incredible thing. Shipbuilding back then was, was a real art. And it, was, it took an average of two years to build a ship. Well, our problem was, as you can well figure, when you lose that many ships, you can't replace them as fast as you lose them. It was about 1943, 42 maybe at the end, 43, when a guy came up with the idea of, of componently building ships. And uh, what they did was is that they, 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 they gave factories all across the country different contracts to build different parts of the ship. They would lay the keel in wherever they were going to lay the keel on the East Coast or the West Coast, and then they would bring in all these components that were completely done. Everything was done in them. All they had to do was set them on the deck, put another piece to it, weld it together, hook up the wire. By the end of World War II, where at the beginning of World War, it was taking two years, two and a half years to build a ship, by the end of World War II, they were turning out a ship every 30 days. That was the, the, the miracle of the concept of building it componently. When I saw that years ago, I thought to myself, you know what, if that'll work in building a ship, that'll work in my Bible. And so what I began to do was realize that I could either take two and a half years to build a ship, or I could do it in 30 days. Now, you won't learn your Bible in 30 days, but you know what I'm talking about. And, of course, that's exactly what I did. And that's exactly what I'm doing with you. I'm building it componently. 
And I'm going to take these Bible sections and I'm going to put them section by section by section by section. And then you're going to weld them all together. You're going to have your Bible. That's what we did in the people ministry. I began to give you uh, principles. And we'll talk about it here in a little bit. That you can understand how to work with people and deal with people. And that's exactly what uh, we want to do. And I want to talk to you today about getting to the place in your life where you have that understanding. Putting it together componently. And I want you to see the end result. Now, we're going to begin here reading in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5. Delano, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service today? Uh, Father, Lord, we come to you just asking that you would just um, speak to our hearts today, Lord. Just uh, let your Holy Spirit fill Bob and just give him the word to say. Give him the, the power to preach, the boldness, Lord, to, to give us, Lord, what you've laid on his heart. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would just sanctify us through thy word. Amen. Thank you, son. I got one question for you. Thursday night when you were working at Ford, or you're supposed to work at Ford, <laughs> and you're calling in Bible study questions, was your boss around then? Um, I actually asked my team lead, could I like, go get on a computer real fast? I asked a question, he said, yeah. So, I love it. John Busquet does it all the time. You know, he's been in hack, I don't know how many times, he had three or four days off, discipline. Because he's over there. And, you know, everybody's complaining about the trucks that when they turn the radios on, nothing but Christian music comes out. <laughs> I get it. I love you, buddy. That's good. I, I love that. I mean, I love, here you are up there working, and, and then, you know, you just don't get any better than that. Okay. Verse 5. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, but of everyone that's hasty is waste. Or want, excuse me, is want. Now that's a great verse and principle that tells us that on no uncertain terms that uh, the real key to getting the Bible down will be our diligence to learn it. Now I've said it many, many times that, and it's true, and I want you to understand what I'm saying here. When it comes to the Bible, there is no fast track to the Bible, okay? There is no fast track to learning the Bible, but there is an inside lane. And I want to show you that inside lane this morning. And I want to show you how that you can get to the place in your life, especially you young people, us older guys and gals. I mean, you can still do it, but you know as well as I do. We get stuck in our ways, and we don't want to change. You know, if our day doesn't go exactly the way we think it should go, we, next month is black and gloom. You know, I know that. I know that. But you young kids, you young couples, well, you got it on fire. You got it. Your mind's quicker, smarter, sharper. Uh, and you, uh, there's no reason why you cannot get to the place in your life where God is giving you the plentifulness that you can't figure out your Bible. When I say older, I'm saying, you know, in your, in your 60s and your 70s. If you're 50 or 40, I, I, you know, you guys up here for your birthday, you're still good. You're still good. You're still good. You may not move quite as fast as you did a couple years ago, but you're still good. That's a great verse. You know, in Bible Institute, as I broke down those 17, Bible in 17 categories, what I do then is they have one month to really get it down. I figure that we'll get more done that way than if we met every week. And if you want to really get your Bible down, we're starting with the whole Bible, then we're going to move into every aspect of it. I kind of liken it to this. Right now, I'm just laying the foundation in the walls of the Bible. 
what we do, 17 concepts to give you an overall appreciation that you understand it. Once we get done with that, then we're going to start putting the, 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 the interior in it. We're going to start putting the sink and the refrigerator and all the stuff as we get in in a Bible way, getting all that inside stuff that you need. But I have you go from month to month, and when you get those one or two sections, that rest of that month, you get it down. You learn it. You really understand it. You come next week, your goal ought to be that you could, if I called on you to teach it from what I taught last week, you could get up and do it. You know, that was my goal uh, for four or five years back in Canton when I was in Mel Sabaka's uh, youth group uh, and, and went to his Bible studies. I don't think I asked a question in all the years that I was there, maybe one or two, but I don't think I did. That was not my goal. My goal was simply this. I wanted to get to the point in my life that if there were two or three or four questions answered that night, I would take that next week, get those things down, run them through my Bible, get them in my Bible. And my goal was, by the time next week, if somebody else asked those questions, I could answer them. That was the way I worked it. And this is what we're doing with the Bible on a larger scale for you. You can learn your Bible, and there's no reason why everybody in this room not get to the place where you get your full potential that when it comes to that Bible, you can visualize everything in it and have understanding to know where you're at with it. It's just the way it works. Now, if you guys in institute, you don't do that, you're not going to learn it. Uh, there's two words that I want to focus on today. One of them is the word diligence, and the other one is the word discipline, because it's going to take both in your life. Now, the word discipline in the Bible, it means a steady pace and the application of what you do. It means to give attention to it. It means to be industrious. What does that mean? Uh, industry. When I grew up, I, I lived in Canton, Ohio there, and back in the day, uh, Canton, Ohio was the steel mill capital of the world. You had Republic Steel all over the place. You had Timken roller bearings all over the place. Uh, it was just a steel capital. And we lived, uh, we lived right, right not not a half a mile from the Timken Roller Bearing Company, and right at the end of that was one of the Republic Steel Company. My dad worked for Republic Steel. And I remember going to sleep at night, and I could hear the sounds of that factory down there. We could drive by, and you'd see these red-hot, big iron steel rails coming down there, and they would be turning them in there, you know, and working on them and doing whatever they did with them. Every once in a while, you could hear a, a crane drop a load of them, and it, even though I was a half a mile away, it, you could hear it clang and hit the ground. And I thought to myself, that's industry. And when the Bible talks about uh, diligence being you're to be industrious, those factories ran three shifts. It was like the Ford company. It's an industry. Something always going on. They're always working, unless they're calling in Bible questions. They're always, they're always going after it. It was all night long I'd hear them steel uh, ballots hit the ground. It, all night long, you'd hear it. You'd hear the horns blowing down there, the trucks going in and out. And it, they, they were an industry. And to be industrious with the Bible means that you work all three shifts. You stay with the book. You want it more than anything else in life. It talks about the word diligence means not to be careless. It means to give attention to detail. Now, last week, we saw a phrase uh, where they said the plowing of the wicked was sin. And that's a true statement. We talked about it. But, you know, the plowing of the wicked is someone who has no care, no diligence. They just plow through life. Most of God's people, say people, most of God's people, when it comes to learning their Bible, they have no plan. They just plow through it. 
they just jump in someplace and they try to learn it, they try to get into it, and uh, uh, they never do. When it comes to reading and learning your Bible, I've told you this many, many times. We have two basic problems. Now, my church here, our church, I solved this problem for you, but we all have two basic problems. Problem number one is, when we're reading the Bible, we don't know what to look for. I mean, there have been a lot of good people who have the best intentions that want to start to reading their Bible, but they get discouraged and they, they quit reading it after a while because, I'll be honest with you, 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 it just, a lot of it is just, if you, don't, if, if you don't know what you're looking for, it's just endless dribble about this guy or this person or this situation, and there's no meaning to it. And the second problem we all have is when we do find something, we don't know what to do with it. I solve those two problems for you. Understanding will solve those two problems for you. Giving you ability <coughs> that wherever you're at in the Bible, because you have put it together componently, because you have visualized the Bible to the point that you now understand it, you can see everything in there, and when you get something, you know exactly what you're looking for in Genesis, you know exactly what you're looking for in Matthew, you know exactly what you're looking for in Acts, and when you find something, you know how to put it into context, because you can visualize it. You have understanding. And, and that's, that's, that's the diligence of all things in life. That's what you need to do. You see, the Bible is the only book on planet Earth that the key to it is not how well uh, you read or how well you comprehend or even how intelligent you are, but rather what you think about it uh, before you ever open it. It goes back to your attitude. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. For when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which effectually worketh also in you to believe. If you don't believe it, it won't work in you. It's just that simple. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. Now, the plentiness here in this verse 5 will be all that you will get from the Bible when you are diligent about it. That book will give you an incredible depth into all things in life, the patterns of life, the structure of life, the world, and everything about it. It'll give you an in-depth understanding of in spiritual things, physical things, and emotional things. An incredible ability of depth to reason, to discern, and to understand all the things around you. You know, a good example of this is found in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5. And, of course, we're not there yet, but it simply says, Evil men understand not judgment. But they that seek the Lord understand all things. That's a great statement. If you're seeking the Lord diligently through the Word of God, you're going to come to the place in your life where you understand all things. You're going to get there. And that is when, as I talked about last week and alluded to it this week, that's when you reach your full potential. You'll never reach your full potential with God till you first understand everything that God is doing as well as we can. And, you know, you've seen in everything in world history, in American history, our ability to see it, to understand it from what God's purpose is, not from what man's purpose is or Gentile nations, uh, their purpose is. You know, being able to speak with authority on subject because the final authority of the Word of God will define it all for you. And, and that's what I can't stand about God's people. They, they never speak with any kind of authority. 
They don't know anything about anything with the Bible. It's always, you know, you go to one of these Bible studies where you got seven or eight people sitting around with a Bible and they'll, uh, somebody will read a passage and somebody will say, well, what do you think? And then somebody else will say, well, what do you think? And they'll go around the room and get everybody's opinion. Hey, who cares what you think? Amen. Don't take that wrong, but who cares what your opinion is? I want to go to a place where I don't get man's opinion. I've been getting that all my life. I want to go to a place where a man can open that book and give me what God says, not what man wants me to know. But that's the world we live in today because they don't know what they're doing with it. They really don't. They can't speak with authority. They can't speak with authority in anything. And they, it's, a, it's an issue that, that is prevalent today in, in Christianity. Speaking with authority on any subject because the final authority of the Word of God will define everything for you. Uh, you take, for instance, how the world looks at the Gentile nations uh, of history. You know, when you go to college someplace or even in high school and they teach you world history, you know, they'll talk about the Egyptians, the early, middle, late dynasties, you know. They'll talk about Assyria. They'll talk about Babylon. Uh, they'll talk about Persia. They'll talk about, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the Romans and the Greeks and all of that. Uh, they'll get into somewhat modern history, and you'll, read, you'll study about England, you know, and uh, the Spanish Armada and Spain and that. You'll learn about the Hundred Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, the War of the Roses. You'll learn about the Russian, uh, insta, uh, in 1917, the Russian Revolution. Then you'll learn about the United States of America, how the pilgrims came over into Plymouth, and they got there, and they, they colonized everything, you know, and all the things that go on. And they'll go on and on and on and on and on and on, like that really meant something. And when God talks about history, God talks about one thing, the nation of Israel. While all this was going on in your Bible, while Egypt was conquering the world, and while Assyria was conquering the world, and Babylon, and the Greeks, and the rhythm of the Romans, and all that stuff, God never recorded one thing about it in a positive sense. All you find out is what God is doing with the nation of Israel. You see, that's the difference. That's the difference from seeing history from man's standpoint with no understanding, a lot of facts, and a lot of knowledge. And a lot of wisdom, but no understanding. You want to understand history, you've got to understand history from God's standpoint. You've got to look at those nations, and then you've got to visualize what God is doing down through history. In the Old Testament, you have 18 types of the Antichrist laid out in your Bible. And those 18 types will be a composite of the man of sin when he comes. And uh, we've talked about it, but I've given them to you many, many times. At the same time, you have 21 types of Christ. And, of course, the uh, Antichrist, you have 18 types because his number is 666, or 6 plus 6 plus 6 is 18. God's number in the Bible is 7, so you have 21 types. 777 is 21, and that's just how it works. But in, in, in modern history, uh, from the crucifixion up to today, uh, you know, uh, in our own world that we live in, we have, we, have, <clears throat> we have five types of the Antichrist that aren't recorded in the Bible. God just didn't give you the 18 types to show you the composite man of sin. He gave you five types after the Bible was done so you could carry on and get an understanding. This is why Paul says of the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need to write unto you. He says you shouldn't be ignorant of these times, but people are. Why? Because they don't have any understanding. They can't look outside the Bible and see their own history and understand and visualize what God is doing. So in the Old Testament, we had 18 types of the Antichrist. When you get in the crucifixion on up to the time we live in now, you have, you have five types. And they're incredible types. The first one is Caesar. 
The second one would be Constantine in 300. What a, what a game player he was. The third one would be Charlemagne. Most God's people don't even know what, what Charlemagne brought to the table in history. They think it's a misspell of the word champagne. You have Napoleon. They just think that that's three flavors of ice cream. No, that's Neapolitan. <laughs> and of course, the greatest type of the greatest type of the Antichrist in the 20th century was Adolf Hitler. But you see, to the Gentile world, it's just history. To the child of God with understanding, it's understanding what God is doing. I, I told you before that uh, you know uh, I, uh, there's a book that I read years ago. Uh, I read it probably once every two years or something. It's an incredible book. They made a movie out of it, and the movie's as good as the book, I think. The name of the, the name of the book is called The Bunker. It's also the name of the movie. It was written by a guy by the name of Donovan, I think. And what this guy did is he, he correlated the last 30 days of Adolf Hitler uh, in the underground bunker in Berlin and right up through his, assassina- or his, uh, his suicide and everything that took place. It, it showed the complete unraveling of the Third Reich. It was an incredible thing. And I'm reading it, you know, and, I'm, and I'm, 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 I'm just soaking it all up because I know what Adolf Hitler, you know, represents in history. So, I mean, uh, um, you know, when the Nazi parties, and I've told you this before, when the Nazi parties put their organization together, they didn't have a lot of people, so they kind of uh, fudged on the numbers when they pushed out their cards. Adolf Hitler's party number was 555. And the next one's going to be 666. He's the last one. And then the one after that, praise the Lord, is going to be 777. See? See how it works? I'm reading along there one night about, oh, I don't know, 1130, and I got, you never get, read something that you just send, your hair stands up on the back of your head. I mean, it just kind of, and I'm reading down there, it's getting close to the end. It's getting close to the end. Now, Adolf Hitler is a perfect type of the Antichrist, when you want to have understanding. He wipes out the Jews. He's got a bad right arm. I mean, every, he's a perfect picture of it. He's the right religion. He had, he had 12 men around him that were apostles, just like Christ did. And, you know, it's, it's an incredible deal. And so, they're all coming up and saying goodbye. They know the end is near. Some of them are going to try to break out and make it to the West before the Russians get there because the Russians took Berlin and they did not want to be taken by the Russians. Adolf Hitler, of course, is going to commit suicide, him and his wife, Eva Brom. The Goebbels committed suicide. She poisoned all of her little kids. She had five or six of them, gave them all chocolate laced with cyanide and killed them all. Didn't want to leave the Fuhrer's side. Just a real mess. So they're all coming by and saying goodbye. Heinz Linz was Hitler's valet. And in the, it's right there in the book. When I read it that night, I just, I, I, the hair stood up in the back of my neck. They're all saying goodbye. And Hein Linz, his valet, comes up and he shakes his hand and, and Hitler thanks him for his faithful service. And he looks up and he says, Mein Führer. He says, what am I to do now? You know what Adolf Hitler said to him? Heinz Lind, to the day he died, never understood what he was saying. Donovan, who wrote the book, never understood what he was saying. He said it's one of the great mysteries that it only was in the mind of Adolf Hitler. I know exactly what he was saying, why he was saying it. You know what he said to Heinz Lind? The greatest type of the Antichrist, the last one in the 20th century before the real one shows up, 555 before 666. You know what he said to Heinz Lind when Heinz said, Mein Führer, what must I do now? He said this, wait for the man to come after me. And follow him. Heinz Lind said, I never knew what he meant by that. I do. 
Donovan, who wrote the book, he never understood what that... I do. You know why? I have understanding. I look at it and I visualize who he is, how he fits into the 20th century. That's what understanding does for you. It gives you the ability to see history or whatever and see it not as the Gentiles portray it in your history books, but what God is doing and see God's hand in it. But you've got to be diligent to get there. That's depth, you see. That's depth. That's, that, but it takes diligence. That's plentifulness. That's having plenty out of the Bible. But it takes diligence and it takes discipline. You see it in the matter of, of religion. I mean, come on, who's right? I mean, really, who's right? I mean, the thousand churches out there, 20 or 30 major denominations out there, they're all wrong but one. That's an arrogant thing for anybody to say. How do you, how do you ever figure it out? I mean, why is what we believe right uh, as a New Testament church and everybody else is wrong? I mean, why is that? I mean, I, mean, I, I, mean, I, I showed the guys in Institute last week when we were getting into that 400 silent years. I showed them that when... When history records uh, everything, you know, from that time that God's finished with Israel to the first coming of Christ, that's where you have Buddha come in, Confucius come in, all of the, all of the uh, Brahmism comes in, all of the Far East religions come in in that 400 years. You know why? Secular history just tells you, well, that's where the, it was expanding in their knowledge. Uh-uh. The devil was taken. Once Israel got out of the way, he's now propagating the world with false Eastern religions that all counterfeited what Solomon had. You got to have understanding to see that. And then I throw I threw another one out to him. I said, "Did you ever wonder why Muhammadanism, the, the Islam, didn't start till 570, 570 years after Christ? Why didn't it start back there?" I, I mean, I told him why. I mean, there's a reason for everything in history that God is doing, and there's a reason why He allowed those to come in then, but didn't allow the Muslim faith to come in till 570 A.D. He had something He needed them to do. Secular history never gets it. Your history books will never get it. But you'll get it when you have understanding. Because understanding is visualizing what God is doing and why God's doing it. That's the key. That's the key. I have people all the time, they, they come to me and they say, well, you know what? I got an uncle that's a JW. I got an uncle that's a Mormon. I got an uncle that's a Seventh-day Adventist. I got an uncle that's in unity. I got some aunt that's a Christian science. I got somebody in the Church of Christ. I got somebody that's a charismatic movement. How do you deal with somebody like that? Well, the first thing you do is have understanding. You realize that none of those seven, those seven American cults, they didn't start in Europe. They started in America. There's a reason why they started in America. And the reason why they're all started in the 1800s. But when you go to a class on religion, they won't give you that. You know why? They got a lot of facts. They got a lot of knowledge. They got a lot of wisdom. They don't have any understanding. I know why those seven started from 1800 to 1900. I understand why. I can visualize it in my mind. I know what God was doing in America. I also know what the devil was doing in America. I can see it. People say, well, you always think you're right and everybody else is wrong. Well, it's a nasty job, but somebody's got to do it. (laughs) At the end of the day, no, I don't think I'm right and everybody else is wrong. I think the book is right. It has nothing to do with me. You give me too much credit. I have nothing to do with it. I just believe a book God gave me. I can't help it that he's given me plenty from it. I know it's not my fault. I wish I would have stayed stupid. Then we could have been good friends. 
People say, well, he thinks he knows more about the Bible than anybody. That's not true. There are a lot of people out there who know the Bible a lot better than I do. Guy said one time, well, you just think you know better the Bible than anybody. No, no, no. I just know it better than you. Getting the same knowledge. The answer is simple. When you have understanding and find the knowledge of God, the exact same knowledge that God has, then you have understanding through diligence and discipline to speak with authority. People are not going to like that. People, you know, you can have a lot of different authorities. You get in a husband and wife marriage, you can have the wife wants to be an authority and the husband wants to be an authority. You can have a lot of authorities, but I want to tell you something. You can only have one final authority. And for me, that's the Word of God. But when you have understanding through diligence, you speak with authority. And people don't like that today. We got this in this latency in church age, we got this idea that anybody that's dogmatic and any absolute standard of truth and final authority is wrong. And if you don't like that or believe that, just come on Thursday night and let's open up the book. It'll be some, so clear so fast you won't know what hit you. Now get this. This is worth coming for today. In fact, you can all leave when I give you this if you want. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. You know what the scribes and the Pharisees' problem was with the Lord Jesus? It was simple. They hated Christ. We know that. But they hated him for one reason. And when you get a King James Bible today, people are going to hate you. We had a kid show up for Bible study that hadn't been around for a long time. And he told his daddy he was coming to Bible study. And his daddy said, well, have fun, but don't drink the Kool-Aid. Kid would have been a lot smarter if he'd have got not only Kool-Aid for himself, but the rest of his family too. Here's the problem. When you have, when you have a Bible that is the final authority, it's going to cause you all kinds of problems. Now look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. See that? You know why they hated him? Because he was the final authority. You know why they hated him? Because he had doctrine. You know why they hated him? Because they were passing out gas about everything with no authority whatsoever. He shows up as the final authority and they hated him and had to get rid of him. You get that book down in your life and you get understanding and you realize there's a final authority in life, you will have plenty. You know why God will give you plenty, 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 and you'll have a plenteous life? You know why? That'll be offset everybody trying to kill you. So they'll hate you. They'll hate you. He was the final authority. He had right doctrine. That was always the issue. It'll always be the issue. And I want you to notice. The people were astonished at his doctrine. The common, ordinary man loved it. It was the professional Christians, the Bible scholars, the scribes that had a problem with it. And today, the issue is the same. You lose the book, you lose doctrine, and when you lose doctrine, you have no authority. So the scribes and the religious leaders today come into the pulpit 
they become your final authority. All through, you find it in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, Mark chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, Luke chapter 20, verse 2, Luke chapter 20, verse 8, over and over again. They're asking him, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are asking Jesus, by what authority did you do these things? What was your authority? So they didn't have one. Now look at the last part of this verse. But to everyone that is hasty is want. Now this is true in life. My grandma used to say, my mama used to say, haste makes waste. That's a true statement. And let me say this. Don't get in a hurry when it comes to learning your Bible. I'd said there was no fast track. There was an inside lane. There's a right way to do it that will get it quicker than the wrong way. But it'll take diligence. It'll take discipline. You get in a hurry when it comes to the Bible, you'll miss too many things. You won't take the time on the right things. And you'll, uh, you'll know, you know, I remember when I was, back in the day, I wanted to really learn the Bible and know the Bible. And I, I was listening to Dr. Ruckman, and Dr. Ruckman uh, had been reading the Bible through once every 33 days. And, and Mel Sabaka, he, he picked up on that. And he started reading through the Bible every 30-some days. So I thought that was key to the Bible. Boy, if you want to learn the Bible, I, I mean, I tried everything. I mean, I wanted to learn it. God just put up with my stupidity. I heard, I heard that if you, you know, played a tape at night when you went to bed that while you sleep, that you'd wake up in the morning and it'd be imprinted in your mind and you'd have it memorized. So I started going to sleep with a guy reading the Bible. All it did was wake me up four or five times a night. I didn't get anything out of it. So I thought the next thing is, you know, this guy talked about uh, light sleep versus this, this light sleep versus uh, uh, deep sleep, and he says if you can you can have more time to do what things in life. To me, that was the Bible. If you follow the light sleep and the deep sleep, figure out and get your deep sleep, then you don't have to have the light sleep. Then you can do more for what you want to do. To me, that was the Bible. Now I I, I, I did that, I, and I couldn't figure it out. There, read the next chapter. That sucker was taking a nap in the afternoon. It didn't work either. So I started, well, 33, you've got to read, you've got to read 50 chapters a day, 50 chapters a day to get through the Bible in a month, 50 chapters a day. And I started because I wanted to learn the Bible. I thought, well, you know, I'll, that'll do it. Boy, if I, I know the other stuff, I didn't work, but this will really work. I did it for two years. At the end, you know, 50 chapters a day, that's a lot of reading your Bible. And I'll tell you what, at the end of two years, at the end of one year, I was the worst spiritual shape you ever saw in your life. You know what I did? I got so hung up on getting the 50 chapters a day to meet my goal, to satisfy me, that I was missing everything in there that he wanted me to see. But it taught me a great lesson that it was invaluable. It taught me it wasn't how many times I went through the Bible, but rather how many times the Bible went through me. So I slowed up. I slowed up. And I realized that uh, there's no fast track to the Bible, but you got to, you know, I, and I had a rule when I was studying the Bible. My rule was, if I saw something right there, stop what I'm doing, go back and run the reference and take whatever time it takes to put all the references together. I cannot tell you how that 30, 40 years later that have saved my hide so many times on a Thursday night Bible study, that I took the time to do it. If you say to yourself, I'll go back and do it later, you'll never do it. You'll never do it. You can't get hasty when it comes to the Bible. And I needed to develop a plan, a system, a, a way to break that book down to make it easy to stay diligent with. 
Uh, you know, and it took discipline. And we've done that for you here based on the things that I've learned and the mistakes that I've made. You have, have a good structure, Discipleship 1 and Discipleship 2. Then we have Bible Institute. We have the people ministry. You have one-on-one. You can have everything you need to get what you need. But back in the day, I didn't have any of that. I was kind of left on my own to figure it out. And I'll be honest, I used a lot of things around me that I already knew that had worked. And I just kind of put them in a Bible format. I had just gotten out of, I just graduated from high school probably two, three, four, three years later or earlier before I got right with the Lord. I'd just gotten out of school. It was still fresh in my mind. And as I looked at the Bible and what I was being taught, all the things that everybody was throwing at me, I figured that the Bible was just like going to class in high school. In high school, we had classes throughout the day. We had subjects. And we had to be diligent with those subjects. Each subject was different. But at the end of the day, it all came together to give me a proper education. I could see that. I mean, I wasn't the smartest guy in the world, but I was the fastest one in the slow class. I saw that. Now, I had already known that seven in the Bible was the number of perfection, so whatever I had to do had to be by sevens. That was just my deal. So I sat down and looked at the Bible. This is 30, 40 years ago. And I come up with seven classes. I broke the Bible down into seven classes. And I was diligent with those seven classes. I realized that the first class I needed to have was an English class. Because in the Bible, the key about the Bible is the words, the sentence structure, the paragraph marks, the punctuation. I realized that the Bible was written in three universal languages, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the early New Testament, and today, from 1600 to 2017, the world language is English. I, I, I knew that the English language had developed from gibberish in 900, being a collection of four or five different other languages, and it reached an apex in 1600, 1611, right when the King James Bible was put out. And then it has degenerated to the place where it's hardly recognizable today. You know, people talk about the King James Bible. Well, I can't understand it. That's because you're a filthy potty mouth that don't know King's English. You see, we've got English language that's so degenerated today, it's hard to recognize something that's pure. You know what God did? I learned this in English class. God waited till the English language got to the apex when it was in its purest form, and then he gave you the final Bible you'd ever want to have in the purest language that ever walked on this planet in its purest form. And it's called the King's English. And he waited to a guy by the name of Jacob was on the throne. Uh, J- uh, James was on the throne. And then he put out his Bible for the end of the earth because that's a Jewish book. You know what, you know what James means in, in Hebrew? It's Jacob. And I, and I learned that in English class. I had guys all my life tell me, English is not the universal language. What are all the people out there that don't speak English? And you, I thought to myself, you missed the point. English isn't a universal language because you think so. It's a universal language because God thinks so. See, that's understanding. Why, you can find any, any people out there, you find an Italian, he'd think Italian was a universal language. You'd find a, a, a Polak, he'd think that Polish was a one. You'd find a, you'd find a German, he'd say Sig Heil, and he'd think German was. You know, what God picked, God put English. From 1600, when the English nation came to power, they gave it that Bible, when the English was in its perfect form, and they took it to the world for the next 400 years. I learned that in English class. I needed that. 
I needed that. Then the second class I took was government, civics class. Because I realized that the theme of the Bible was a kingdom. It was a government. And so there's where I learned the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I got into the book of Ecclesiastes, and I saw Ecclesiastes as things under the sun, and it's all vanity. And I saw every, every form of government. I saw capitalism. I saw socialism. I saw Nazism. I saw fascism. Every one of them is laid out in the book of Ecclesiastes, and they're all vanity. And then I realized that God's government was a theocracy with God on the throne. I needed to know that. I was diligent in that class. And today you'll find that when I'm teaching you the Bible, whether it's an institute or whatever it is, I'm constantly going back to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven because that was a government class. Then I took, I took biology. God is a trinity. So when God made man, he made him a body, soul, and spirit. I, I, I investigated. I wanted to know what each one of them was. They each had to be different because they're spelled different. So I found out what a man's body was. I found out what his soul was. I found out what his spirit was. Understanding each of those three parts is more was important to me when I was in high school cutting up a frog. I dissected man. And yet the average Christian, the average pastor in this town, if you put a gun to their head and ask them to explain the body, soul, and spirit of man, which they are, and if they're saved, they have all three parts, they couldn't do it. And yet you won't buy a car without driving it, smelling it, sitting in it, asking everything about it, looking at the sticker on the window. You'll buy, you won't buy anything in life without reading the fine print and doing it, and yet you'll get saved and let you become a trichotomy body, soul, and spirit, and you don't have one clue about who you are in Christ Jesus in that sense. Biology. Then the next one I took, our next one I took was a history class. Boy, I needed that. I found that in the Bible that everything, of course, boy, you get into everything with Gentiles with this, man. And I found out that, that the whole history of man is based on a study on two landmarks found in the book of Proverbs. We're not there yet. We'll be there next chapter, 2228, 2310. One of them's the ancient landmark of the nation of Israel. The other one is the old landmark of the New Testament church. And you know what it says in those verses? It says, if you don't get those landmarks down and get an understanding of history, you enter into the fields of the fatherless. You know what Gentile history is, of anything? Fields of the fatherless. They're orphans. They don't have any rhyme or reason or purpose to it because they don't have any understanding. Understanding only comes from God. And understanding only comes from God through diligence in the final authority. Then the next one I took was a music class. Boy, we needed that one. And I watched how that Europe, music developed in Europe through the Baroque period, the classical and the Romantic to the modern period. I watched how that the, the, the great hymns of Mozart and, and the Bach and the, and the great save guys versus the classical and the Romantic all the way up to the modern. And I watched how that it, 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 music in Europe went along, with the, went along with the development, acceptance or rejection of the King James Bible. Then I watched the same thing in churches because they gave me understanding. Now, we have a thing here called Great Hymns of the Faith. If you were look at these fine here, you'll find that uh, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, in, in, in hymns, and uh, in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. This is the second one. This is hymns. 
And you'll find that these hymns in here, every one of them were written between 1600 and some of them after 1900, but majority not. 500 of them. You could get another hymnal that have 500 more. But my point is this. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishment and psalms. In other words, the music that comes forth in the churches needs to be based on the doctrine found in the word of God. Amen. These do. You can preach these sermons Amen. or these songs. <laughs> They're sermons. You go to most churches today, you've got praise band, you've got worship band, got people up there, you know, singing, Oh, I love him. Oh, I love him. I love him. Oh, I love him. You close your eyes, you could be anywhere. You could be in a nightclub. You could be Frank Sinatra singing it. When I grew up in school, we had music class. My favorite song went like this. Pine tree, pine tree, pine tree, pine tree, pine tree, pine tree. Pine tree, pine tree, oh, pine tree. <laughs> what do you get from that? Probably more than you get from a lot of Christian music. I don't get it. Oh, I get it. I got understanding. When you dump the book, you lose your music. When you have no doctrine in your preaching, you have no doctrine in your songs. So now you can close your eyes, you know, and you got guys up there on the... In the, in the praise bands or the town, if you close your eyes, you could be in a, you could be in a, you could be, you got rock Christian bands now? Christian rock. And I grew up the only, I, everybody preached against rock and roll, but as a Christian, we do believe in rock and roll. See? I've been saved by the rock and my name is on the roll. See, that's, that's the Christian rock and roll. But it's crazy. So I had to learn music. Then I had, a, I had a math class. Oh, I hated math. But I realized that numbers were the key to everything that God's doing. Book, chapter, verse. See? Sixth book, 23rd chapter, 31st verse. You want to find yourself in Kansas City? You can look at the longitude and latitude. 95 degrees west, 93 degrees east. Uh, you want to come see me? 8308 Woodson Drive. You want to call me on the phone? 816-590-6315. Everything we do in life is a number. You go over to some place and want to do something significant, I want your Social Security number. Don't have one, you don't get nothing. Everything on your credit card, you got a number. Everything in life, you're assigned a number. Everything in life, you got a number. Everything. And I found out two great truths. I found out one great truth about God and one great truth about the devil in math class. I was diligent. I found out that God always divides first and then he'll add. See? He'll divide you from the world. And then he'll add the blessings in your life. Amen. Where the devil will add first, and then he'll divide. See? That I had a science class. Science class was incredible for me. The Bible's the most scientific book in all the world. And I found in the Bible that the Bible talked about the telegraph. The Bible talked about, talked about automobiles. The Bible talked about, uh, you know, uh, uh, the light always moving. Bible talked about spectroscopes, where you parted the light. Bible talked about the shape of the universe, the demise of the universe. I mean, you know what? Back in the 1700s, when you got sick and you were really badly sick, you know what they did? They cut out and let blood out of you. They called it uh, uh, bloodletting. 
because they thought that the blood was the problem while you were sick. So they would cut you and, and bleed you, and you were supposed to get better. In most cases, if they bled you too much, you died. It wasn't that somebody got into the Word of God and studied it and found out that it isn't you take blood out, you put blood in. That's where they come up with transfusions. Why? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. They got that from the Bible. They got it from the Bible. They didn't get it from, from some secular stuff. You want to talk about it in science? You want to talk about the black holes? They're in the Bible, Jude chapter 13. Water cycle? Ecclesiastes. The water, uh, running water? You know, again, they were back in the 15, 16, 1700s, they were, doctors were going in and they were operating on somebody or working with somebody and they'd wash their hands in a pan of water and then they'd do that and the people were getting uh, infections and dying. Then somebody read Leviticus chapter 15, verses 13, which said uh, that uh, you wash your hands in running water. And so they started washing their hands in running water, stopped putting them down in the same old dirty bowl, and got the germs off. It's from the Bible. Bible talks about wind circuits and patterns. Bible talks about the FBI, uh, the big on DNA and fingerprints. They got a fingerprints on file. You know how they got that? A guy by the name of George Putman back in 1930 read over in the book of Job that every man's hand was sealed up by God and found out that every man's fingerprints was different. That's where it started, from a King James 1611 authorized version. The next time you're arrested and they start fingerprinting, enjoy it. Get a blessing out of it. <laughs> Fresh water in the sea. How about atomic structure? Found in the book of Hebrews. Found in the book of Malachi. The fact that there's no geological ages, there's no Jurassic period, there's no evolution. Uh, this thing, is, this thing is, is very clear. And when you understand it, you see it and you get it. And you get it in plentiful form. God keeps, the more you get in the book, the more, the more you diligent you are, the more plenty you get. Now, there are two classes I would not allow in my school, and you ought to not let them in yours. One of them was recess. The second one was no drama class. <laughs> now, I look at my life at some, what, 40, 50 years in the Bible. Here's what I've learned. The longer I'm in the Bible, the less I know about the Bible. And the longer I'm in the Bible, the more I grow and God gets me to some place where I'm in, get doing what God wants me to do, I realize that there are no experts in the Bible. There are no experts when it comes to the Word of God. There's just students on different levels. I may be in my post-grad work right now, but I'm still a student. There are no experts when it comes to knowing the Bible. There's only students on different levels of learning. Some of you are on the beginning level. Some of you in the mid-level. Some of you upper level. Some of you getting up there really good. It's just that simple. You know, I have a test that I, I never have, but I would give somebody, it was given to me, to find out if you really know the Bible. You know, there's a lot of wannabes out there. When I came up out of my training, it was a standard thinking that if a man couldn't pass this test, he was not ready to pastor uh, or do anything with people on any kind of level of, of building a church. And the test consisted of just 10 questions. I still got them in the front of my Bible. And they're so designed that these 10 will reveal uh, for anybody if some guy has really been diligent with the Word of God. We've got a lot of people who know a lot of things about the Bible, but they don't know the Bible. The test was an oral test. And you'd be asked a question and you'd have to give an answer and a guy would time you on the answer. He wouldn't time you to see how fast you gave it. He'd time you because you had to fill up 10, 15, 20 minutes of an answer without your Bible. 
from your memory and laying it out. Because they knew that if it was in here and in here and you could spill it out, you had it. They wanted to see if we could visualize that we really understood what we were talking about. And the longer somebody talked, the more they got it, he understands it. And believe me, when you're called to do that, if you pass the test, you know your Bible. And the only way to pass that was to have been diligent and disciplined in the book to studying it. It proved one thing about every guy that went through it. They had disciplined themselves and were diligent, and now they had the plentifulness of what the Bible had to offer. I mean, let me tell you something. You fill up 20 minutes on something, that one of these questions, and brother, you better know some things because you have to start pulling from. It shows the depth that you have to be able to draw from because that's what it's going to take in your Christian life. Now, those were the old school days. You don't get that today. Those were the old school days, which I am happy to be part of. Uh, it's, it's, nothing today is like it was. Uh, when you go to basic training today and you go into the military, uh, it's, it's, I can't even imagine it. They're not allowed to cuss at you. No, I'm not an advocate of cussing. Too much. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. When I came through basic training, brother, they not only cussed at you, they hit you, they kicked you, they beat you. You can't do any of that today. The guy can scream real loud, but he can't use one curse word. You know, and please, and I'm not, I'm not an advocate of cussing, but you know what? Screaming without cussing has been very powerful. <laughs> Don't take that wrong. In the military, I mean, you get some drill sergeant. You ever see, most of you probably saw the movie Full Metal Jacket. The first half of that, where they're in basic training, that's the Marine Corps. I mean to tell you, I was running down the road one time, and we were down there, and we were, had rifles at port arms over our head. We were running like four miles, and my arms were so tired I couldn't hardly stand it. And I started to seek my rifle, and I saw the drill sergeant up there, and I saw the other guy over here, and I thought I could get away with it. What I did not see was the other drill sergeant coming up behind me, and I laid that rifle down, and he had a rifle, and he butt-stroked me along the back of the head, knocked me down, dropped my rifle, knocked my helmet off. I mean, knocked me almost completely out. But you know what? I never dropped my rifle again. Now, if he would have just said, now look, (laughs) keep your rifle over your head. They used to make us hold buckets out with sand in it. Buckets out with sand and, and for, for 20, 30 minutes at a time. Oh, and they were so heavy. You could feel your arms dropping. We hated the guy who did it. The guy who did it, we hated him. His, his name was Webb, Sergeant Webb. He'd been in Vietnam two, three times. We hated him. He was sadistic. And he, 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 he made us hold those buckets of sand out there and standing out there. And boy, you dropped down those things and you had to hold them for 20 minutes. By the time we were done, it was 30 minutes and they were like 10 pounds each. 10 pounds may not seem like much, but I'll tell you what, we all hated him. The day we graduated, he pulled us all in a circle. He says, I know you guys hate me. I know you guys hate everything I've done for you. And you can't, every time you're going to see a, a gallon bucket, you're going to think of what all the agony I put you through. But he said, there's a reason to it. He turned around, unbuttoned his shirt, took his shirt off, turned around. He had scars down all the way through here. 
And he says, one night in Vietnam on my second tour, we got overrun. And he says, the VC was coming over the wire. I was out of ammo. And he says, I, I, this guy came with a, 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 a sword or whatever it was, and he went down to slice me in half, and I held my rifle up and blocked that sword with that rifle. But the downward thrust came down, and even though I was holding it, it came down to that thing, and he cut me across here, and it cut me across here because I couldn't hold that rifle up. And one of my buddies shot him to keep me from dying. But I left these scars. And he says, from that day on, when I became a drill sergeant, there, I promise you one thing, not one of you guys here will ever die because you couldn't hold your rifle up. You held the buckets. Now see, the Bible just like that. A lot of times you don't understand why God does some of the things he does to you, but then when you get into the book and he explains it like he did at the end of my basic, the guy that we hated, now we all loved. Of all my days in basic, he's the one guy I remember. He cared enough about me to hurt me to maybe save my life. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. It's the difference between the old school, the way they trained you, and the way they trained you today with the Bible. Now in the military, they give you your color test. What's your favorite color? Sensitivity training. They have women drill sergeants. <laughs> Through the authority of doctrine, the principles, and the Word of God, it will develop you. You will you will reach your full potential in being filled with the, with the, to the brim with biblical principles. And you will look at each set of principles. And that's the key that I was going to say to you. You know, the Bible is in components, but principles are in components. And, and just like, you know, you have a recipe for dinner and it has different components to make the dinner good, in dealing with problems, you have different principles that pick up the recipe to solving the problems. And uh, it's a, you've got to put them together. I mean, there's a set of, you have somebody that's in false religion, there's a set of principles that you use for that. Somebody that's in false, in false uh, you know, false salvation, there's a set of principles. You have relationship issues, there's a set of principles. Training up your children, there's a set of principles. Reaching a lost child that went to the world and trying to get them back, there's a set of principles. In dating, there's a set of principles. In marriage, there's a set of principles. But remember, you have to be able to understand how to use them. Talk about the balance of life. There's a set of principles. And you, you know, in, in, in dealing with people, you're doing one thing. People are going through a tough time in their life. How do you help them? I know. Here's why you help them. Here's what you are to them. When they're going through a tough time emotionally, physically, and spiritually in their life, you are Romans 15.1. You are being strong for the ones that are weak. But how do you take a weak person and make them strong? You take the principles in the packages that fit their problem and you give them the principles. You hold them accountable to the principle. You show them. You get them to understand just like I'm trying to get you to understand the whole concept of the Bible so you can visualize and see it. They have to learn to visualize the principles that will fix their problem. And you know as well as I do when somebody's going through a tough time you know, emotionally, they always can't see it right away. So you've got to be patient. You've got to work with them. You've got to help them. You've got to hold their hand. You've got to get them through it. But through diligence and discipline, you have an endless supply of principles of plentifulness to speak intelligently and deal 
with all that you have to deal with on a biblical level with authority. But it all goes back to start with your attitude toward the Word of God. Now look at verse 6 here. And getting, and getting of treasure by a lying tongue is a, is, a, is a vanity tossed to and fro of them that seek death. Now doctrinally, this is all the tribulation period. And, you know, I won't have time to get into that, but it's, a, it's all doctrinally in the tribulation, dealing with the, the richest religion on the face of the planet in the tribulation period. But as we look at it from an inspirational concept, it says that if you ever get the hidden treasures of the Word of God, if you ever fill yourself up with plentifulness of the Bible principles and the Bible itself, you'll have to do it the right way. Uh, on my little computer pop-up on the Internet the other day, it had the... Something had those things you can look on. It had the 50 richest preachers in the country. And you just start with one and work your way up. When I went through it, I said, I got to see this. You know, I want to find out who all these guys are. I had an idea of some of them. But you know what? Every one of them, every one of them, every one of them, if they're in the pulpit today, every one of them, every one of those 50 were lying about the Bible and the truth of the Bible to get what they wanted from people. Their, their whole ministry, everything they do is based on, 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 on lies. Uh, the book of the world system of valueless treasures. And 98% of the messages today are based on a lie about the Bible they're having or a message that's just going to tell you what you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. You know, every time you go to church, you want to waste the time going to church hearing about things, how good you are. You don't want to, you can get a mirror to do that and just say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of the wall? And you say, well, you are, Bob. <laughs> you want to hear the truth about what you've got to change in your life. Amen. Now, it says in that verse that they're tossed to and fro. That means there's no satisfaction in their lives. A Christian in life in total turmoil because, you know, all they've got in life is vanity. The Bible says people without discipline and diligence will be unstable. There's no, there's no rock foundation. They're like that story in Matthew chapter 17, 7, verse 6, 26, where you got two guys. One builds his house upon a rock, one builds it on the sand. And when the one who built it on the sand, when the tough times came, it didn't last. But the one who built it on the rock withstood everything that was coming. Here, I want to build your life on the rock, the foundation. Lest, as the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 says, you get blown about by every wind of doctrine. Building a phony Christian life or ministry without knowing one thing about the book God gave you. Picking and choosing like Saul did last week. Building it on, on telling people what they want to hear instead of what they need to know. Not a ministry based on truth like 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's just denouncing the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of truth. Putting out the truth, whether you like it or you don't like it. Now look at verse 7. The robbery of the wicked shall destroy them because they refuse to do judgment. There's somebody stealing and robbing you of God's truth. And it will destroy you in time. That's what happened to the leadership that God gave to Israel. And that's what most of pastors are doing today. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 20. These next two verses are worth coming for today, too, by the way. I'm glad you didn't leave. This is a great unknown verse. Now look at this. Somebody says, well, I don't know about the King James Bible. Well, I don't know where he gets that at. Well, I don't know where I get all that. I get it out of the Bible. You got to read it sometime. 
Now let me show you the greatest unknown verse that you've never probably ever seen that will tell you that the Bible you got in your hand today is the right Bible. Now watch this. Jeremiah 23, 20. The anger of the Lord shall not return. That's the second coming. Until he have executed, until he has performed the thoughts of his heart, in the latter days ye shall consider it perfectly. You know what he just told you? He told you in the latter days he's going to give you a book that's got the thoughts of God in it that's perfect. I don't have to tell you which one that is. He said God will not return until he gives us a book that is the book of his thoughts that in the latter days that will be the crucifixion to the rapture last 3,000 years, 3 days of the 7 we can consider God's thoughts perfectly. Now let me show you this one. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 30. Just stay with it. Therefore behold I am against the prophets saith the Lord that steal my words everyone from his neighbor. There it is. That's 99% of the Baptist churches that you're going to walk into. It's 100% of the neo-evangelical crowd you're going to hang out with. And in the charismatic movement mess is right in there too. And anybody else that tells you that you don't have a final authority that you can go to, and in the latter days you can consider the very thoughts of God perfectly. Now Proverbs 21.7 says that the robbery of the wicked shall destroy them because they refuse to do judgment. God gave us a book which contains the mind of God, His thoughts, and those in every, about everything in life. And now you and I, in the latter days, can consider it perfectly. You can read it. You can study it. You're to be diligent with it. You're to discipline yourself with it. But the prophets of God have robbed us, and they have stolen the Word of God from us. And now Christianity and God's people, spiritually speaking, have been destroyed. They have no power of God in their life at all. Our verse says, the thoughts of the diligent, but only to cleanliness, but of everyone that is hasty is want. Learning the book based on your loving it, being diligent and being disciplined in it. That is the only way you're going to get the understanding of God. And again, understanding is your ability to look at anything in life, any problem a person has. Anytime I put you up with somebody to deal with an issue in their life, no matter what it may be, anytime you start to disciple somebody, anytime you have to develop the discernment to look at that situation and see it as God sees it and realize that, you know what, I understand what I have because I can see it. And I see it based on the principles involved in this particular circumstance and situation. Well, we'll hold up there. I'll uh, 